Welcome back to another episode of the Green Campus Podcast. My name is Neve, and today I'm joined by Dr. Fionn Rogan. Thanks for coming on to the podcast, Fionn. Thank you, Neve. Hi. Uh, so just to kick things off, could you introduce yourself and just tell us a bit about your background and your role in UCC? Sure, yeah. So my official title is Senior Research Fellow, and I work in the, the Mara Centre and the Environmental Research Institute. And, and I also... A lecture on energy innovation in the School of Engineering and Architecture. And so I came to UCC in 2008. I came as a student, a postgraduate student, and I studied a master's in sustainable energy. And that was um, a master's degree was, was quite new on the scene at the time. It was, it was the only one in Ireland. Um, so it was about the fourth year running and it was very interesting. I got on well and I stayed to do a PhD which turned into a postdoc, and that turned into a research fellow position. So I've been hanging around uh, for yeah over 10 years now um, in, in Cork and UCC. Fantastic. And have you always been interested in issues of climate change and sustainability? Um, somewhat. I, I studied industrial engineering in Galway, in Uy Galway, and I graduated from there in 2002, and that didn't have a, a very much an environmental aspect to the course. Environmentalism wasn't in the air so much at the time. It was uh, economic growth. Was uh, The Celtic Tiger was in rude good health. Um, so I worked in industry for a couple of years. I worked with Intel in <coughs> near Dublin. And I got lots of good experience there, but it was my, my soul was missing something, we might say. Um, um, so I meandered around teaching English as a foreign language for a few years um, but the yeah around 2007 to 2008 kind of coinciding with the economic crash and and the soul searching that was happening then there was also a, a growing awareness of climate change and uh, the UK introduced their climate act at that time there was a big report from the IPCC um, and that made a big splash at the time so the the topic of climate change uh, really kind of came into the mainstream around that time and it coincided with me for kind of looking for something else. Um, so, uh, yeah, kind of a low-level environmental interest. Um, I was able to kind of develop that when I came to UCC to, to do the Masters. So you were an author on a recent paper, um, Improving Energy Savings from a Residential Retrofit Policy. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so this was a, a paper uh, I worked on with colleagues a couple of years ago uh, with a PhD student, Tomas McGear, and we use our computer models of the energy system. That's our research I do. That's the, the basic method. We we simulate a some aspect of Ireland's energy system and we, we look at how we use energy now and how we could do it differently. Um, so for that paper on, on retrofitting, so we... We looked back at Ireland's retrofitting um, performance over the last couple of years uh, and we got a data set on, on on the grants that people got for retrofitting. So what types of grants and what types of retrofits did people do to their homes? And It was for, I think, a five-year period, um, 2010 to 2015. Uh, and most people who get a grant, they get it for a couple of improvements to the home. Um, so maybe... Um, put in some attic insulation or put in some heating controls or, or a solar panel. Um, and, and these kind of one or two items we call a shallow retrofit. Uh, and that leads to uh, an improvement in the kind of energy efficiency. But 
it's a kind of relatively minor improvement compared to a deep retrofit, um, which is what's required to get a home up to uh, a very high energy efficiency standard. And there's the BER system that rates homes, and uh, that has the, the letter scale. So a, a B or an A rated home will usually require a deep retrofit to get to that standard. So in that paper, we looked back at the three most common um, shadow retrofit measures. So most people, when they get a grant, it's some of the ones I mentioned, attic insulation, heating controls. And we did a what-if analysis. So instead of those people doing that, that shadow retrofit, what if they did a, a full deep retrofit? And we found that the energy savings they could have got would have been 86% higher, I think was the, the number we had. Um, so it was a, a significant higher level of saving. Um, and that, that was looking back, and I suppose that those same analysis would apply when looking forward that if if there's a lar large scale retrofitting in Ireland but if it's only shadow retrofitting there will be some improvements but it won't be sufficient to meet the, you know, the climate reduction uh, targets that we have signed up to um, in our legislation. I think you just answered my next question actually but about how important retrofitting is to our 2030 and 2050 climate targets. Yeah it's fundamental yeah and um, um, so all of the policies in the Climate Action Plan um, from that was published in 2021, they're all really important. Um, and even by themselves, they're not enough to meet the, the carbon budgets that have been recently... They're, being, they're going through the, the government um, approval stages at the moment. Which, so the, uh, the scale of the, the change that's required is really quite dramatic. So about a, a half a million homes are uh, the target to get up to a B2 standard by... 2030 and that's a that's an epic international project an analogy that i sometimes use the rural electrification scheme from the 1950s and 60s in ireland when about two-thirds of the homes in ireland didn't have electricity at that time so it was a, it was a big government mission to to electrify those homes it took a number of decades uh, and they had to really set up a number of organisations to do that um, but it was that scale of, of a national project that we're, we need here for, for the retrofitting rollout so yeah there's some interesting analogies from that from that time uh, and so how the when people were considering electricity there was the cost aspect but there was also the the services that they could do because they were getting electricity in their homes in the 50s and, and similarly today that retrofitting a deep retrofit it will save you money over over 10, 15 year period. It's a step change in the quality of life um, for anybody living in, in a deep retrofitted home. Just the, the air quality is good all year round, the temperature is good. So with all the, the negative health impacts that come from living in a cold, damp house or inadequately heated home, so they all go as well. So there's, uh, there's huge comfort benefits, uh, health benefits to, to deep retrofitting as well. And just moving on from that, could you tell us about the capacity project? Yeah, so the capacity project is some funding we've received from the government, from the Department of uh, Environment, Climate and Communications. Uh, and this supports our, our research group, the Energy Policy Modeling Group, to, to develop computer models to, to support decision making in the department, to support the, the design of new policy uh, and to support the, the planning for the government to look at what policies do they need to achieve some of the targets that they've signed up to. So we've been doing this project for a number of years. 
it's a four-year project, but for over 10 years, really, we've been working closely with uh, government departments to support them as they, as they grapple with these complicated, challenging topics. Civil servants in Ireland, in departments, they don't tend to be topic specialists. They, they move around into different roles you know, that supports their career development, and that's the, the generalist model that we have in the Irish civil service. But it presents a real challenge for them when there's a topic with a technical complexity to it, like the, you know, the energy transition and climate policy. So they, they need that expertise, but they're also vulnerable to capture by industry lobbyists who will promote their own uh, interests. So, so yeah, our role in, in UCC is to support the, provide evidence base that can support the ambitions that they need. Yeah, we use a number of different models to support departments and we have a lot of meetings. I used to be on the train to Dublin every week going to meetings, but it, it's all online now. And yeah, and often the informal discussions with, with civil servants are I think the ones that are most valuable for them just to get a handle on you know, just the relative trade-offs and benefits of the different policies and, and measures. And just related to that, what do you see as the most important steps that our government can take to meet our 2030 and 2050 climate targets? And what do you think are the greatest challenges uh, facing us in relation to those? No easy question. No <laughs> easy question, yeah. Um, I'm sure lots of people in the government are asking themselves this. There's a lot of things I could say. One that perhaps isn't appreciated because I'm lucky to be inside the room at a lot of meetings and to see was the, the messiness of policy making and the, we say government, the government, um, but there are many different parts of government. There are many different uh, interests and, and departments and there isn't coherence across the government. And there's some kind of stark examples of that. The data centre kind of electricity growth, that's, that's very much part of the economic development of Ireland, but it's making all of our climate targets much harder. So if there was coherence across the government for climate, the climate emergency, which they have declared in the Doyle, I think that would really improve the effectiveness of, of so much of the, the intentions that are there. So there is ambition to, to deliver a lot of these targets, but a lot of it just gets ground down really in the, the inconsistencies across. I suppose that's one point. I mean, you know, more retrofitting, more levels of electric cars, more active travel, uh, more energy efficiency there's, there's a lot of well-known measures but and it's not just the government either it's, it's the local authorities i think the the capacity there is is a bit lacking um the, the cycling infrastructure again the kind of the design and implementation of that i'm not sure if the design skills are in the local authorities to to implement those those pieces so yeah, every organization you know, what can universities do what can schools what the businesses do these are questions we should be answering. I don't have all the answers, but it's not just the government, I suppose. It's, it's, they have a leading role, but it's just up to them. Yeah, absolutely. On every level, mm-hmm. well, kind of we need that political will and political change. It can't just be one level. It has to be systemic change on absolutely, yes. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just moving on, so you teach a module on energy innovation to energy engineering students. Could you tell us a bit more about that module? Yeah, this is a a module I just started teaching last semester or last September, and it's for for advanced uh, for fifth year and, and, and master students in energy engineering, um, and it's broken down into three areas. So we have an energy technology innovation, uh, an energy system innovation, and an energy sector innovation. 
and the, the energy technology innovation aspect that's quite similar to a lot of the uh, or it builds on a lot of the existing courses and expertise you see so we have experts on wind energy we have experts on, on solar and on, on electricity and electric cars but those are what are the commonalities for innovation across those those technology um, so we look at technology readiness levels and, and how long does energy innovation take how long has it taken in the past how long might it take in the future uh, and for energy innovation it's, it's not just the, the technology that we develop the technology and then it's good to go you know problem solved it, there's a big existing energy system that a technology has to to fit in and has to to work with technically but also people how we live our lives uh, so that that's something that we look at on the, the energy system innovation part of the course uh, and we, we have students look at challenges such as variable renewable electricity so now about 40% of our wind in Ireland come 40% uh, of our electricity comes from wind but when the wind isn't blowing how do you keep the lights on um, so there's both technical and business model and kind of regulatory policy solutions to these challenges but they all have to work together and so in the energy system innovation aspect of the course, the students look at those kind of multifarious aspects. Uh, and then finally, the energy sector innovation. So we work with some of the utilities in Ireland who, who run a, an accelerator program for startups. So the ESB, they run this program called the Free Electrons. And for, for big established energy companies like uh, the ESB, Kind of stability and security is more important to them than, than innovation. Kind of innovation is often easier for smaller um, startup companies. Um, but what the SP do is they try and set up partnerships with these smaller startup companies. Um, so they're always kind of prospecting and looking for companies. So we have the SP kind of, kind of come in to our students and tell them about some of the, the startups that they're partnering with. And I want to grow this part of the course and actually have the students themselves deliver a, a kind of a, a pitch when they're coming up with a solution to some of the, the problems that they delivered in the form of a business model pitch and that we have the, the ESB kind of evaluate their quality of their pitch so it's it's not just about the technology that engineering uh, is good at it's it's also the, the kind of the business development skills as well so so trying to bring those two together uh, in the classroom so yeah it's a, it's an interesting and uh, topic yeah fantastic and you have that kind of practical output at the end of it with the assessment that's yeah. really valuable yeah and, it, and it, there's the communication kind of aspect to it as well that it, again is uh, we don't always teach that to to undergraduates but it's hugely important um, when they go out into the into the world of work so yeah trying to do that earlier and just moving away from teaching for a moment another project that you've been working on is the imagining 2050 could you tell us about what that involves yeah, so this project, uh, it recently finished, um, but it was, a, it was a really great research project to be involved with. So it had a, a large number of academics from UCC, but also Queen's uh, University in Belfast. And it was from many different colleges. So it was led by Chair Van Alley in the Department of Sociology. The full department title is very long and I can't remember it, but he, he chairs a sociologist. Uh, we also worked with people from, from governance, from, from geography, from a number of engineering, energy engineering areas. And kind of urban development and planning as well in, in Queens. The basic idea with this project was that we we listened to communities about what what their vision was for climate action. So instead of 
doing the research first and then presenting the findings to, to communities and asking them what they think or uh, is it okay. Uh, we, we went out listening, first of all. So we, we had a, an event up in Athlone. We had two events in Athlone. Uh, so we presented some ideas, but we, we listened to the community as well there. We kind of used their ideas to develop scenarios around what Ireland's energy future could be. And, and we did the same in Ballancolic here in Cork as well. And yeah, it was a very rich project and we developed a, a toolkit for, for other community organisations to conduct similar kind of community engagement events. We had some, uh, Clodagh Harris, who's an academic here in the, in the School of Governance, and she, she advised the Irish government on the, kind of the design of the, the Citizens' Assembly. Uh, so she was involved in that project as well. So that kind of Citizens' Assembly model we developed that, and, and this toolkit that we developed is for, for any other organisation to, to run similar type of events. So yeah, it's a great, great project. And yeah, the, the final report for that should be launched soon. And uh, could you tell us maybe what were kind of the common themes coming from the community level of their kind of concerns and the challenges that they're facing? Yeah, one of the things that we found in Athlone, I remember, was, was the idea of getting the basics right. When we asked people just generally, what are you concerned about? It was, it was health, it was housing, it was, it was cost of living. Climate change came into all of those areas. Loan flooding was mentioned a bit more often, but it, it wasn't the number one priority. So kind of getting the basics right was uh, unlocking um, a lot of, covering some of the same challenges that, that climate change had. Yeah. So that was one thing that came up. And that was, yeah, that was a kind of an insight that, yeah, we, we wouldn't otherwise I think. Alongside that just to take it back to UCC you were involved with the mock cop Mm -hmm. that ran back in last October which was a simulation of the global climate discussions that were happening in Glasgow at the same time. Could you tell us about your experience there? Yeah so this was another great event so it it, uh, we started the planning for it about six months in advance so the UCC president's office they set up a president's working group on COP26 and and there was a a lot of activity in UCC kind of climate and COP related, but this working group co- coordinated that, brought a lot of it together. So there, there was a cohort of UCC staff and students that went to, to Glasgow, but for this mock COP, we had this in, in UCC campus. Uh, the week before COP26 happened in Glasgow, uh, and we recruited about 40 uh, UCC students to participate and to represent countries of the world and to try and achieve a, a agreement that limited global warming to 1.5 degrees. This is the Paris Agreement target. So we divided the students into six country groupings. There was uh, the EU, the United States, India and China, and other developed nations and other developing nations. And we, we had a number of, kind of speeches at the start, which is as they do in COP uh, every year. But the real meat of the activity was where the students had to come up with a a set of numbers about what were their what was their country going to commit to in terms of the year they were going to start reducing emissions, what percentage per annum they were going to reduce emissions by, uh, the level of forestation they would afforestation they would commit to, and and if they wanted any money from the Green Climate Fund, if, if they were wealthy, would they contribute to that fund, and if they were, uh, if they needed money to um, to realise some of their targets, would they draw down, and. So we had a kind of a set of opening pitches from all the countries, and we also had this very nice software developed by uh, MIT Sloan, where we could test 
there on the spot, what were the implications of those pledges on the global climate. So after the first round of negotiations, the, the students got down to, I think, about 2.1 degrees, kind of limiting global warming to that. And yeah, so that was, a, was quite a, an achievement, and they were happy with that. Then we had another round of negotiations, and I think we got from 2.1 to, to 2 degrees. And this insight that it gets much, much, much harder to get to that 1.5 degrees. You know, there's no more low-hanging fruit. That was a real eye-opening moment for the student participants uh, because we we didn't limit it to only people who were interested in climate change. We wanted to, as much as possible, bring in people who, who were curious but they, they weren't researching it or they weren't experts. Uh, and it was an eye-opening experience. The students told us this, that they... They didn't appreciate how hard it was and, and the different power imbalances as well where, where different countries are. So yeah, it was yeah, a great form of learning, kind of experiential learning. Um, so we're, we ran it last year. We, there's hope to, to run it make it an, an annual event. So yeah, you might see it coming up again. <laughs> and what was the, the feeling amongst the students after the negotiations? Was it kind of, were they, did they feel defeated or were they kind of hopeful? It was more on the pessimistic side, I have to say, than the hope. And as me, I was I was role playing as the um, the Secretary General of the United Nations, so it was part of my role to try and keep the hope alive. It's a tricky balance to get with the, kind of the realism as well that that comes. So the, I mean, the role of activism in in the student climate strikes that have put climate change on the agenda dramatically and have increased the the global ambition. I suppose I reminded students that they had already achieved things uh, and it was a moment to kind of look at some of the other options that are considered I mean there, there are kind of technology fixes you know, carbon capture and storage and geoengineering these are often raised when people realize how, how hard it is but you know, there are issues with those technologies but then there's also kind of things like uh, our those lifestyles you know, that how do our lifestyles contribute to these things that you know, yeah, it's a tricky moment to to manage when they when there there is a it's a bit of a downer when when they finish it. I suppose eye opening rather than doom and gloom. <laughs> and in a, a general sense, I suppose in terms of climate change, do you feel hopeful in ter- in terms of the next kind of fifty years and climate targets and everything? Yeah, good days and bad days. On the hopeful point, I, I was recently somebody drew my attention to this book, Active Hope by Joanna Macy, just started reading it. Even the, the title and the idea of that act of hope is something that's much more, it's not something that you receive, it's not something that's passive, it's that you, you have to actively go out and, and push for it. That's what, I suppose, supports me in my low moments. And it's, I am hopeful, having seen the kind of bottom-up activism of what that can achieve. And I think that's where progress can galvanise the kind of the top-down so if we're, if we're waiting for the government to fix everything, we'll be waiting a long time. But kind of galvanising them into action through kind of bottom-up activity, I think there's great potential there. And just in terms of Ireland, let's say, if you could enact one change tomorrow, what would it be in terms of sustainability and climate change? Also not an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> one idea which I heard, which which I really like, is... On the, on the active travel and the cycling infrastructure, and we know that it can have kind of great potential. 
Denmark and, and the Netherlands have done that and there's but it's challenging to, to kind of build that infrastructure. The idea of rather than building piecemeal bits around towns and cities is to is to pick one area and to to go all out. So it could be a town, maybe pick a town uh, and just the thought experiment overnight transform it into a, a place where there's incredible cycling infrastructure for for and for walking as well. It's punishing for cars, so the you know, walking and cycling really is a better alternative. But the reality is, is seen by people who live there, um, and the, the idea is that it's people can really see what it looks like, and, and then others would say, "Well, we want that." So sometimes the the national level project is proceeds in fits and starts, and there isn't a kind of a vision of what it can really look like. So maybe you know, having a mini Amsterdam, I suppose, somewhere in Ireland um, that everybody can go and see what it's like. I think that could tap into the kind of the peer influence that's very important with, with, with climate action that will if we see that our neighbours are doing it we're much more interested in doing it ourselves so if, the, if there's a town in somewhere that that's doing it then why can't other towns do it I think that could be transformative and catalytic so it's one topic that's kind of in my mind because um, the, the war in Ukraine and Russian invasion uh, and the impact on global energy markets the price of oil etc I was looking back at the the 1970s uh, and there was oil shocks there again war uh, kind of related and I was struck by the sense of history repeating itself but a lot of good came out of the, you know, the oil shock of the 70s there was big investments in energy efficiency and investments in, in energy innovation so a lot of the wind and solar technologies that are now providing electricity you know, they, they really started to be developed in the 70s so those that that opportunity shouldn't shouldn't be wasted. There's a lot. The, the climate legislation now is is there. It's on the it's on the books. So we have a lot of the technologies to really go move away from fossil fuels. So so that I suppose I hope that moment isn't. So yeah, that's one other point that's in my mind at the moment. <laughs> and just to wrap up our episode, this is our question that we ask everybody. But uh, what's your favorite place on campus? Yeah, it's a, it's a nice question to think about, and I'll be I'll be deviant here, and I'll, I'll give two answers because they uh, but they're kind of related. So the library, uh, I I I I love books, I love the knowledge that's there, I love the access that we have as academics. So I, I do have many nice moments in there, just reading, browsing, kind of randomly picking books. But I also love the space outside the library, like between the library and the student centre, because I've had so many great kind of random encounters there with with colleagues who I haven't seen in a while or and it just people are walking uh you know different directions people always seem to have a few minutes to, to stop and chat when they're walking so we've had some great serendipitous encounters there so that would be my other favorite place on UCC. that's a great answer <laughs> so fantastic it was really great to have you on uh, i appreciate you coming to talk to us yeah, thanks very much Niamh. Nice to enjoy that and just to sign off, as usual, you can follow Green Campus on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at UCC Green Campus. And you can get in touch with us at greencampus at ucc.ie if you'd like to get involved. Thanks for listening. Until next time.